potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another fascinating guest today, helping to create a better tomorrow on some really unique fronts. Uh, we have the honor today of being joined by Bill Toronto, who is president of the Global Health Innovation Fund at Merck, uh, as well as a founding partner of the organization since it was uh, started back in 2010. And Merck Global Health Innovation Fund is a corporate venture capital group. Uh, it utilizes a healthcare ecosystem strategy. Uh, they invest globally in platform companies uh, with proven technologies or business models, where ultimately Merck's expertise can help accelerate revenue growth, enhance value creation, to ultimately deliver integrative healthcare solutions. Uh, Merck uh, you know, Global Health Innovation Fund, they have $500 million under management, they're an evergreen model, uh, and they invest broadly in the domain of digital health, as well as some really other interesting segments. Uh, they've made over 60 investments in portfolio companies to date, they've done over 20 exits, uh, and they're actively involved in the five major segments of therapy planning, care management, health analytics and artificial intelligence, e-clinical trials and other enabling technologies. Uh, Bill comes to us with, uh, with over 30 years of experience in the healthcare space, including 20 years of healthcare investing. Uh, in addition to his experience in venture investing, he has more than a decade of, of management operations experience. Uh, Bill also serves as the chairman of the Merck Innovative Ventures Board, a group that manages uh, the innovation funding of portfolio businesses, also the chairman uh, of this GHI fund uh, management board. Uh, prior to Merck, uh, Bill spent 18 years at the Johnson & Johnson. He was there. He was involved in various venture capital, marketing, sales, and business development roles. Before that, he spent eight years as an investment banker. Uh, a lot to get into today, a lot of very interesting topics to talk about. We're honored to have him. Uh, Bill Toronto, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm real excited to talk to you and talk to your audience today and uh, tell you, you know, everybody a little bit about what we do. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'd really like to start things off. You know, I, I was, once again, I, I read through your bio, I was looking uh, and, and sort of watching a lot of your your past presentations. And, you know, the interesting thing to me, you know, you started off at J&J &J some years ago. You started um, as a sales rep, actually, uh, back in the Janssen organization. And I'd love to sort of hear a little bit about the early days. So, you know, you, you were involved in investment banking. What made you hop into healthcare originally, if you don't mind uh, telling us a little bit about that early story? Yeah, no. So, you know, when I graduated in 1985, so I'm dating myself a little bit, but, you know, that was back when jobs were quite plentiful. There were probably more jobs than people. Um, so it was pretty, you know, wide open sort of aperture. And uh, I actually had no intent of doing any of the stuff I do today. I actually wanted to be a, a madman, you know, be in the advertising industry and, 
uh, for whatever reason, didn't get placed uh, at that time. But Wall Street was hiring like crazy and then got the opportunity to do that. Uh, but uh, and then that's kind of where I learned the basic mechanics of of investing and, and working in, um, uh, you know, everything from private equity to, to M&A and those type of things and just learning sort of the business. But um, I actually, partly how I got in Johnson Johnson too, is my sister had worked there and was pretty high up in the organization and for many years said, why don't you work for J&J and do the kind of things you're doing at the bank at J&J? You can do those things there. And uh, she kind of convinced me to, to explore that. And like anything in life, it's right place, right time sort of opportunity came up and I got to join Johnson and Johnson. What was great about Johnson and Johnson for me was before I started doing any investing for them, you know, one of the things that they, you know, really encourage is you learn the business um, and try to do as many different jobs. Cause I, I didn't really know a, a tremendous amount about healthcare at, at the time. And, you know, so did everything from, um, and these are all quick rotations, but, you know, did the sales rep, did the uh, hospital scene, did district manager, regional manager, and then where the real investing components started to happen is I, I got this great opportunity to go to Europe um, and work uh, internationally for J&J. And part of the function that I had was, and this is, you know, late 90s, was looking at how did, how was technology starting to impact healthcare? And this is, this is the really early beginnings of technology and healthcare. I mean, the EMR still hadn't even started yet. So this is really what I would call the basic beginnings. Um, but we, you know, myself and another gentleman named Craig Richin got the opportunity to um, begin to invest in certain technologies in Europe. And it really took off. And at the time, we got asked to come back to the U.S. and start a sort of similar group that the whole function of the group was to look five years out in the future of healthcare. And could we predict where healthcare was going. And then from that, could we then invest in technologies that would allow J&J at the time to, to be prepared? So it was kind of an interesting forward-looking group that was, was allowed to exist. And I said, what was really wonderful about J&J at that time was they were willing to learn and they let us learn. Because um, we, like I said, it was really the very beginnings of, you know, we call it digital health today, but it wasn't even called health IT even at that time. It wasn't even HIT. It was just sort of technology in health. And it was sort of that whole beginning of the data era. Um, and uh, like I said, starting the beginning of the EMRs and sort of how was you know, data sort of starting to, to function within healthcare. And really where the success began to occur and what sort of set the foundation for what I do at Merck is it came from kind of a big failure we had at sort of at J&J where um, if you remember back in the day, there were these Palm Pilots, and we were going to try to put out 90,000 Palm Pilots in the hands of physicians to be communicating at the point of care. And we invested in two companies, one called uh, Parkson, one called iScribe, and they failed, not because of the idea. The idea was right. It was the execution. We ended up kind of in the hardware business. We had trouble setting up communication. But what J&J said to us at the time is, what did you learn? And when we peeled back the onion, what we really learned was the foundation of what my strategy at Merck today is and what really was the foundation of the strategy at J&J was that, and we use this phrase, data is the currency we're going to use to transact in the future healthcare market. And we realized that data was the most important thing, not the hardware, not sort of the software behind it. It was like, what was the data being collected? And from that, we actually ended up starting a company called SureScripts, um, which is the largest e-prescribing hub in the world today that's now owned by the chains and the independents. But that was our first sort of success that then led us to 
kind of moving forward in all these sort of what you, again, what you call digital health today, but they were just, I would call it data infrastructure investments to sort of prepare J&J. &J. And, you know, venture capital is a small world and uh, Merck kind of heard about our group and what we're doing and how successful we were. And again, it's one of those right place, right time, you know, right area to be in. And, and Merck called and said, you know, we're really interested in exploring external innovation. And, you know, we like what you're doing at J&J &J and would I ever consider, you know, coming over. And um, I, the offer was fantastic. You know, what Merck was allowing us to do was fantastic. And I got to bring a number of my teammates over and, and really start the investment function at Merck. What was unusual about Merck, what's different today is my remit was slightly different at the very beginning in 2010. What we were asked to do in 2010, if you go back in time, Merck was more of a healthcare company at the time, uh, or wanted to be a more broader healthcare company. We were in a lot of different therapeutic areas. And what they were looking to do by using external innovation was um, have us invest in businesses that they eventually could acquire and drive revenue and EPS. So they're really looking at as a, a support function, maybe for M&A, uh, but also to help drive external innovation. And we did that remit really successfully for the first five years of the fund, six years. But then in 2016, Merck decided to become a biopharm company. As today, we're you know, one of the biggest oncology companies sure. today with Keytruda is one of the best-selling oncology drugs. And so we made a fundamental shift in 2016 to, to think more about what assets need to exist in the world that Merck can work with um, and less about M&A and where these assets were, you know, the secret sauce of these pharma companies, what they do with the asset. It's not so much that they need to buy the asset, but the asset exists. And then, then that further, you know, invigorates the pharma industry, but further supports healthcare. And so we shifted our focus to focus a little more on the needs of, of Merck and the healthcare community instead of sort of this sort of M&A function that, um, we were kind of originally thinking about and doing at the very beginning. And so today, as you mentioned in my bio, you know, we're a $500 million evergreen fund. We focus solely on digital health. Merck does have another venture fund that focuses on therapeutics, but I'm, I'm all the, everything that's not a pill vaccine or a general therapeutic is basically the way to think about what I focus on. Um, but it's still in that core investment thesis that data is the currency when you should transact in the future market. If you actually look at our portfolio, they're all data companies. Yep. They're somehow they're capturing data, analyzing data, looking at data, aggregating data, curating data. And it's all these different ways to think about data. Um, and, you know, and what also evolved from an investment thesis is one of the biggest things I learned at J&J was that point solutions actually don't work in healthcare. You have to work in an integrated healthcare ecosystem. Okay. And so what we try to do is what you mentioned, that ecosystem investing where we start with an anchor tenant, and the anchor tenant is a kind of a company that might solve 50 or 60% of the problem, but nothing solves 100% of the problem. Then what we do is we invest around it, and then we, what we think about is how do we mix and match companies and bring them together to build scale in a larger company that A, can not only deliver for Merck, but can deliver for other farmers and deliver for healthcare. And that's the hardest thing in digital health. I think the hardest thing in healthcare is that sort of scaling thing, but that's really what's the basis of our, our strategy. As you said, we've probably done close to 70 investments. We've exited some 30 companies, 40 companies. Um, we've evergreened the fund a number of times. So financially, we're quite successful. We're probably the largest, if not the largest, digital health fund in the world today. Um, you know, we deploy typically over 100 million a year and bring in way more than that. And obviously, that's a survive as an evergreen fund. Um, and today, I think we're sitting on around 34 portfolio companies. We're uh, growth investors. So we typically do Series C or later. 
Uh, we'll do an A and B round occasionally, but we don't do any startup or C capital. That's out of our charter. And our sweet spots for that 10 to $15 million first check with follow one and the same. And we're very active investors where we take board seats and we manage the investment, you know, from, from the beginning investment all the way to some kind of disposition where we sell it, Merck buys it, maybe it didn't work out or we keep investing, uh, but we try to remain, you know, very active investors. So I'll stop there. That's sort of a 60,000 foot view of how my career started and how I sort of ended up at Merck. And um, it's been a great 13 year run so far and uh, quite pleased, you know, that I was able to make the move back in 2010. Yeah, it's a, it's been a, an outstanding journey. And as, as I'm sitting here, you know, listening to you, and you, you you're mentioning um, sort of this healthcare ecosystem model, and and I, you know, I'm smiling because you know, in, in preparing for this discussion, uh, I spent a lot of time sort of like swimming through um, the portfolio, both what you have now and some of the stuff you exited. And I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, it just, it just pops out at you. And I, I thought what we could do uh, is maybe talk a little bit, you know, hop into the portfolio a little bit, and sort of look at some of these ecosystems within the ecosystem. And I, I think just a, a great place to start uh, is, you know, as you're saying, you're, you're heavily focused on digital health. And, and when I sort of spend a little time swimming there, you know, you, you run into things like Medifind, uh, helping us find, you know, medical care and transparent with consumer and and then the uh, WellDoc for diabetes coaching. And then you even get into some investments like with this company, Unite Us and the social determinants, which has become such a major topic, not just on our show, but they hear about it everywhere. It's, you know, it's, uh, you know, just such an important piece of this whole, uh, you know, medical consumer, you know, you know, environmental system that you know, sort of keeps us uh, health and well, <laughs> let's say, talk just a little bit about um, the digital health ecosystem within the portfolio. I think it's completely fascinating. Sure. So the way, the way to really think about uh, how we invest is sort of, I'll start with just sort of a high level, our sort of investment focus areas. So sure. even though you sort of mentioned it, I'll kind of maybe call it even more succinctly that, so one of the big areas that we invest in is discovery and development. So it's thinking about opportunities to improve drug discovery and accelerate clinical development. Yep. And you can imagine that's things like digital data networks and analytics for things like target identification. So thinking about personalized medicine almost for the first time, can we get the right patient, right place, right time? We're very interested in things like drug discovery platforms, novel mm -hmm. delivery platforms, uh, synthetic biology. This could be molecular diagnostics. Heavily interested in things like digital pathology and radiology, digital biomarkers and remote monitoring, uh, blood-based diagnostics, and then the e-clinical space. And if you think about drug discovery, within that, there's all these different types of ecosystems that you could build. You know, for example, one of the big areas that we're really interested in right now is the use of AI in drug discovery. And so the first question is, you know, can we invest in, in sort of assets that begin to use technology for better um, things like target identification, you know, a different way to do drug discovery than we do before. And then if you can think about saying that, you know, they all do, you know, this slightly differently. That's kind of interesting thing about the companies that are out there. No one does it quite the same way, but if you can think about who does it, you know, maybe slightly better than others. And then if you can mix and match what the gaps are, that's how you begin to build in, a, in an ecosystem around that very specific topic. So one of the things that we're heavily interested in is this, could we build an ecosystem around this sort of concept of using AI and drug discovery? So different way of doing it. Um, you know, another one that we're really highly interested in is sort of that I mentioned earlier, the use of um, uh, pathology, which is maybe the future of oncology. 
you know, the way we think about pathology and, and how, does, again, does AI and technology change the way we look at tumors, the way we look at slides, and the way we amalgamate that data. But in the end, it's, you know, if you eat all these ecosystems, ultimately get back to the original thesis, it's the data, right? Because what we're trying to understand is how do we gather all this new data, curate it, and get to an outcome? Because that's ultimately what we do at Merck, and that's ultimately what gets reimbursed. That's also what healthcare is about is outcomes. And so we try to think of that. And so that's like, so that's one sort of area that we're heavily interested in. We're definitely interested in where you were mentioning before access to care and patient support. So that's sort of enabling access to medicines and timely delivery of the right patients ensure optimal outcomes. So that's social determinants of health, like you said, unite us. Um, this patient-centric care, it's commercial data and analytics. Again, it's uh, clinical decision support tools. It's provider communication could be monitoring and patient support care management. So, you know, it's not just companies like Unite Us, but we have another company um, uh, navigating cancer, which helps, um, patent, you know, cancer patients navigate their care beyond the therapeutic. Um, and so that's kind of what we're trying to think about is, is how do we sort of Think about digital health from everything from preclinical and you know drug discovery all the way through post marketing, and we manage that sort of journey all the way through um, to getting you know helping getting something to market, but then managing that patient all the way through. And again, those are another types of ecosystem that we're interested in building is how do we build better care management? Now, another interesting area that we like is sort of evidence generation. So. One of the big ecosystems we've been building for the last five or six years is the whole idea about real-world evidence and real-world data. We have companies like Trinetics, Datavant, that are all these sort of companies that are in the data aggregation, integration, harmonization, curation space. So we're thinking about how do we create companies that do data analytics and power real-world evidence, scale data networks, um, looking at multimodal, longitudinal data, identifying care gaps, can we do population health screening, access to clinical trials. So it's a whole idea of, of we finally got to the place where we're, we're actually beginning to take all this disparate data that we have, um, combine it with what you see in the EMR and create a sort of a longitudinal patient data set that allows us to understand the patient better, but then begin to curate that data in a format that, that allows us to say, well, how do, we, how do we treat that patient better and differently and maybe move towards personalized medicine for the first time. So again, another sort of big ecosystem we're, we're, we're building. The last one I'll mention is really new to GHI. We only picked up this area the last two or three years where Merck asked us to look at it, was sort of the manufacturing and supply chain sort of coupled with IT. And this is really enhancing efficiencies and reliability of manufacturing supply chain and IT and enterprise operations. And, you know, for example, in the supply chain, we invested in both a, a drone delivery company um, and uh, that's called uh, Balancing and then a, a box company where you can hook a cold storage box to the drone and deliver things like vaccines to rural areas where they don't have access to those types of medicines on a daily basis. And so it's thinking about supply chain differently than we do today. And then, and then again, because data is the important thing is how do we think about all the disparate data that happens in the supply chain from track and trace to fraud to packaging and how do we use digital to, to sort of combine all those things together. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an art and a science the way you do this sort of ecosystem investing, but the way we really think about it is we, you know, we identify an area and we do as much research as we can do in that particular area. 
And then from that research, what we try to then do is identify as many companies that are playing within that space. And then within that, we then to begin look for those that we can call that anchor tenant, which is that mm -hmm. one company that has a little more scale, it's in the growth equity stage, that we can sort of lay as the foundation to the beginnings of the ecosystem. And then again, the idea is you invest around it and then figure out over time which, which assets you can pick and choose and bring together. And we have another function that sits under me is we have a private equity fund that allows us to deploy capital beyond what we do in the venture capital and actually bring these sort of assets together. And I think if you were, before you were mentioning some of the research you did, one of the big ones we did was in the cardiovascular monitoring space, our company called Preventus Incorporated. Mm -hmm. We just recently sold that to Boston Scientific, and that was that was a you know started as a single little idea around a patch-based technology and software where we could you know better monitor patients beyond what they had with the halter monitor. But then we ended up buying three or four different companies to fill in certain gaps that we had, and built it into this you know very large uh, company that we were able to exit to Boston Scientific. But that's sort of how the concept works of of, of trying to build scale in healthcare but bringing value back to healthcare through that scale. And that's sort of you know, how we think about our portfolio and some of the general things that we do from the ecosystem strategy that we employ. Really cool, really cool. And, and you know, it was along those lines, I just have to ask us, you know, one of the, um, it's sort of the exit investments I was looking at, you, you were involved in um, uh, a company called HealthSense, which was involved in senior care mar uh, monitoring, you, you sold the great call. They ultimately, Best Buy ultimately bought them. And I had Adam Wolfberg uh, from Best Buy on a couple months ago um, talking about sort of, uh, again, senior care and sort of care in the home and all that. I was just wondering, because I know the portfolio is kind of, although you have the little niches of the diabetes and heart disease and so forth, kind of still sort of therapeutic target agnostic. Are, are you seeing a lot, um, I was just wondering, on sort of the uh, this front that we call age tech that nowadays coming to you? And we just... We just had somebody on from, um, you know, Melinda Gates has this uh, Pivotal Ventures organization that's heavily into sort of the age tech space. I mean, the numbers there are just staggering where this is potentially all going. But I was just wondering if you if you see a lot coming into the, uh, to be pitched nowadays, uh, specifically on sort of the elder care age tech front. It's an interesting space. You know, we, we were, we looked heavily, as you mentioned, back when we had HealthSense and we thought it was an interesting ecosystem to build around the aging in place sort of, sort of concept. Um, I think we were a little ahead of the game at the time, um, even though we had a nice exit. Um, the, the elder market is still heavily underserved. Um, and I think, you know, we're starting to see therapeutic companies that are focusing on that space. But I still don't see a tremendous amount of digital health assets that target that group. So I would say for us as a fund, not that we're not interested in it, we, we haven't seen a lot of assets that have compelled us to get back within that space. But it's an extremely important space because obviously with the baby boom generation now being one of the largest, if you want to call it a geriatric space at you know, age 65 and older, that's, that's going to be one of the largest consumer groups of, of healthcare over the next 10 to 15 years within then the Gen Z group, you know, and X coming behind that. Uh, I think it's an important space. I, I, you know, I wish I could answer it a little better than you then, other than we don't, we don't see a lot of assets, generally speaking, uh, within that space. I think one of the bigger areas I think that can, that is good for that space is monitoring. And I think where we've seen some of the greatest um, advancements in technologies in the monitoring space, you know, when we did Preventus, that was 10 years ago, and monitoring was at the beginning stages. 
Um, but today the devices are so, so much smaller, faster, better, they collect more data. And that's gonna become important where we can then begin to monitor, you know, people and not just the elderly, but any group, you know, within their home or, or not within the traditional office space. So I think one of the areas that we're still heavily interested in that could support the aging in place area is monitoring. And that's still a big investment focus for us. You know, where, where can we take that to the next level? Um, you know, we were in the cardiovascular space. We'd love to do something in oncology, mm-hmm. you know, where we're either managing adverse events or we're managing, you know, full care within the oncology space or, you know, is it pre-treatment? Um, is it early diagnostics in that space? But but just trying to understand where monitoring plays a larger role within that sort of aging in place space. But it's a hard, it's actually a very hard space to invest in, believe it or not. Interesting. Um, the one other thing, you know, at, at the beginning, you also mentioned that, you know, you don't specifically touch on um, sort of the pills, the injections and the vaccine, sort of everything that Merck works on in-house. And, and another thing is, personally, just really interested in the space, and, I, and my one of my previous employers, I won't say a, a bad word, but got heavily involved in sort of the, sort of this electroceuticals domain a couple of years ago. Um, I, I know you were involved, you had an electroceuticals company in the portfolio. I think that was something you exited, but I was just interesting because here um, again is a uh, a therapeutic tool that isn't one of those three things. You know, I call it the zap. <laughs> uh, this particular is the vagus nerve stimulation stuff. But um, again, it, it seems like um, it's an interesting little piece of your story in the sense it, it's extremely bleeding edge. Uh, and obviously Merck isn't working on this stuff in-house. Talk a little bit about how when you get some of these, and I won't call it weird because it, they're just different, let's say, than what we normally think about as the pharma industry. Talk about what happens a little bit when you when you sort of get these business plans. I mean, do, do you sort of <laughs> you look at it for a second and say, mm, or do these go in a different pile at first and then uh, you look at them a little bit later? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, one of the things we ended up um, losing, so when we first started the fund, we kind of copied the J&J strategy where we were looking very forward, five years out, what was going to happen. And, and technologies that you might go, wow, what, what's the even application in healthcare? We sort of lost that when we sort of transitioned in 2016, but we brought back about three years ago, something that we call Next Horizon. We carved out $50 million out of our fund to look at those types of technologies because they're important. And the way we think about it is, is things like, it could be electroceuticals, it could be DTX even, where pharma hasn't fully adopted that, but it's it's assets that we think will play an important role within healthcare, but we don't know quite what it is. So for example, we've invested in a quantum computing company. We Sorry. do think quantum computing has some role in healthcare, not quite <laughs> sure where is it. We, you know, protein folding company we invested in. Uh, you know, just these little sort of, I would say out there sort of technologies that we believe there's something there, but we, so we invest a small, you know, one to 3 million, we don't take board seats and we just monitor it. And if we find that it's, that it has value, then, you know, we try to get Merck engaged as as a, you know, a company that, you know, maybe pilot, just see what this is all about. So we do look at a lot of technologies that um, aren't necessarily tradition in our wheelhouse to make sure that we're keeping up with that one piece of looking very forward of, you know, what's going to happen five to seven years down the line. You know, one of the other things that you mentioned that I'll I'll talk about is just sort of where do we abut sort of the therapeutic. So we do have the Merck Research Last one, which does pure therapeutics. We're, we get as close as we can to that fund in a sense. So for example, when we're doing companies that use AI and drug discovery and target identification, they might actually turn into a drug company 
because they're using the technology to identify different targets. So we're, they're, I would call them non-traditional sort of therapeutic companies that don't have a therapeutic yet, but they're all about the technology and the data. And so that's really what we're investing in. So we get as close as we can to the therapeutic, but actually doing the therapeutic. So that is part of our investment sort of philosophy. But then again, a lot of that technology um, is untested and very uh, futuristic, if you will. And so we do try to carve out part of our capital to, to invest in those type of things and then see what happens. And then, um, and you never know, you know, one of our companies called Abside, which we invested in and six months later did an IPO. And then Merck signed this massive uh, commercial agreement uh, to work with them on, on a sort of a drug discovery, uh, target identification concept, um, you know, which is hopefully in the future might prove prove valuable, but it was something that we invested in that was part of that next horizon that we didn't think Merck would ever look at, um, you know, for five or six years, but it turned out was something they were very interested in. So we, again, we, you know, we try to make sure that we're still doing that forward thinking and making sure that we're not missing technologies that could have an impact on healthcare or an impact on Merck in the future. Um, so it's a small amount, but it's still, it's still worthy, you know, kind of investment strategies that we have. Yeah, no, I, it, it's refreshing to hear that you even set that up. And it was uh, 2021 Next Horizon yeah, investment vehicle. So if everybody listening, check that one out as well. Um, talk a little bit about, I, I know, you know, I've heard you speak a little bit in the past on sort of the, unfortunately, the the needs to invest, obviously, in down markets. And, you know, normally think of sort of the traditional venture capitals, the groups that, you know, okay, they invest a portion of their money, but they keep some of these funds around in case of the rainy day and so forth for their portfolio. Now we can't invest anymore now. With the Evergreen model, I mean, it seems like you have a little more leeway, um, especially with the you know major corporate partner like corporate sponsor like Merck. Talk a little bit about sort of investing in a in a world like today where things probably aren't going in the right direction and companies need to, I don't know, you know, bolster their 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 cash uh, holdings and uh, some of the things that you look at, uh, particularly in this particular environment. Yeah, I think, you know, certainly COVID um, had an impact on our portfolio. You know, one of the biggest things, and this was not just healthcare, this is probably anybody in the business, you know, one of the things was the drain on cash because typically, you know, for most industries, saw the airline industry, you know, almost shut down completely. So what do you do with these portfolio companies? And so one of the things that we we kind of prepared for at the very beginning was to make sure our companies had enough cash. That's always the big thing you want to try to do um, is make sure that they have runway to move forward and at least survive that downturn. And I think we did a pretty darn good job of making sure that all our portfolio companies had that you know cash. And whether we did it through notes and those type of things, um, you know, really didn't matter. Though there's probably going to be some reckoning in the next year. Um, so, so because a lot of the valuations that occurred are coming down, you know, so we're in a down market on valuations and a lot of those companies that have the higher valuations can't raise capital at those valuations. So the way I look at the downturn uh, is actually more opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Um, we have this theory called the dented can theory that there's a lot of great companies and there's nothing wrong with the company. And just because they can't raise capital um, due to their high valuation, isn't a byproduct that the company in itself isn't good. It's a byproduct of that they raised, you know, either not enough cash or too much cash or uh, at the wrong valuation, which they can't do today. And so we look at it and go, well, that's a recap market for us. There's, there's a tremendous number of companies that we think we can go in and recap and reset the valuation and get very, greater value for our, our money invested. 
um, and, and move those assets forward. So we think there's a good opportunity, you know, in downturns for, for what we call this sort of dented can concept. Um, but like any venture fund, you know, we, we also have to be very disciplined. I think in healthcare, you have to play for the long game. Um, nothing scales overnight in healthcare. It's, it's not like technology where you have a, you know, a Google that overnight is in every country, in every home. Healthcare doesn't work that way. Healthcare starts locally and regionally. And that gets to why we do that ecosystem investing and that scaling is we've got to try to build a company that can scale across, you know, multiple states and then multiple um, groups of healthcare users. And so what happens is even though we might be in a downturn, we need to continue to fund these companies because they're good companies and just get them to the point of scaling. Because whether there was a downturn or not, these companies still would have needed, you know, an inflection of cash to continue to grow. They, they, they don't, you know, they don't typically in one to two years turn into these tremendous companies, even Series C investing like I do, you might even call some of those startup companies in a sense. So even though they've made it to the growth round, they're not these massive $100, $200 million companies. It takes time to build that kind of revenue and that kind of growth. So I think you have to have a, a tremendous amount of discipline and, and wait these kind of things out. But again, I've always been opportunistic. I've always found that there's great value in these down markets because uh, there's a lot of wonderful companies that, again, no fault of their own, find themselves in an untenable position where they have wonderful products, but just, you know, the inability to grow at the fashion they want to because they typically run out of money. And, and we think those are good opportunities for us to come in and, and, and sort of recap them. Um, but I think if you're an early stage investor, um, you're probably more exposed uh, I think, you know, ultimately as a growth investor, you're typically investing in companies that have established revenue, established customers. So not that, you know, these companies can't have something go wrong, but they're a little safer than the earlier stage investing that goes on in any industry and especially in healthcare, where I think a lot of early stage investors are exposed right now, um, simply because they don't have enough capital to keep investing. To your point, uh, you know, I work for a big corporate, we're an evergreen fund, we're typically have more resources. We're typically more flush with cash and we have the ability to invest off balance sheet. Um, you know, in a private fund, once that money disappears, that money disappears. And whether you have reserves or not, that doesn't help you in any way. Um, but, you know, I think we're at a, probably an advantage at the corporate level. Um, I think to play the game a little longer and, and, and I think, you know, use it to our advantage going forward. Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's just a lot of interesting difference between, you know, corporate and private that just lends sometimes the corporate being a little better position. And, okay, so putting corporate and private aside for a moment, um, in here we are in 2022, and we have all this other stuff out there now. And I would, you know, I don't want, you don't have to go through all these, but I would love to get Bill Toronto's perspective um, on, let's say, the front end of this stuff in terms of, crypto, NFTs, DAOs, crowdfunding, whatever you want to put in that basket. Uh, on this end, in terms of exits, SPACs, are, are, well, they were popular a, a year or so ago, maybe not so much now. How do you look at, at, at the market the in the fund at all of this alternative stuff that's happening? How does that impact how you do things, how you build syndicates um, and look at companies? Talk, talk a little bit about this. If you would. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think all the, and I call them tools, they're all tools in the toolbox, um, whether it's IPOing, SPAC money, you know, alternative investment funds or vehicles. 
you know, it's, it's caused um, some problems, I think, because what we saw in healthcare, and specifically, for example, the SPAC market, um, you had companies that were taking money that couldn't IPO and probably shouldn't have taken the money. But the problem is the SPACs only had a two-year window to get rid of their money. But I heard some statistic that there was something like $15 billion in unused healthcare SPAC money. Well, when you've got a company raising their hand saying they'll take the money, what ends up happening is the company wasn't viable enough to, to, to take the money. Uh, and, and, and become a SPAC. And so what we've seen is, you know, the SPAC market fail a bit in healthcare. I think the IPO market um, remains to be seen. The obviously weird thing about healthcare is most companies don't actually IPO in the end. They mostly get sold privately in healthcare, um, but it is a good vehicle to have available. So I, I always look at them as um, they, they need to exist because you should always have alternate funding models, whether it's using debt, you know, to your point, NFTs or any of these other types of funding models, but they have to be used appropriately. And, and that's where we get into trouble is when, um, you know, money's just getting thrown into a sector for no other reason than because the money exists and there's no discipline. And I think there's a, you need a tremendous amount of discipline and patience and understanding of, of where the right tool and right funding mechanism should come from, but they should all exist. I'm not saying they shouldn't exist, you know, because they play an important role but they need to be used appropriately. And, and, and like I said, to me, probably one of the more painful things in healthcare has been the SPAC market that hasn't worked out the way we wanted. The IPO market on some of these companies are down, but I attribute that somewhat to the investor market learning about these companies a bit. They're not traditional brick and mortar. They operate somewhat differently, but we do see the ones that have been more successful, at least have P&Ls that mimic brick and mortar companies. So the investment community can understand the company and they seem to do a little better. Um, but I, I just think um, you just have to be wary of the kind of funding you're putting together as a syndicate and what's the right type of funding. And you just can't take money for the sake of taking money. Though I understand why it happens, right? A company's desperate for money. It can't raise capital and somebody's there with a check and then they end up taking it. Um, but it does disrupt the market, I think, quite a bit. Uh, you know, generally speaking, but, but they're good tools, right? Because, you know, look, we, we do debt financing and sometimes you mm -hmm. go back and go, is that the right thing to do at the time? We did, mm -hmm. we did eight follow-ons this year and most of them were debt financings, uh, partly because the market isn't ready for these companies to raise a traditional round. Um, so we look at an alternative funding mechanism, um, you know, and that, at the time was the appropriate one. So that's more the way I think about it. But I think healthcare has been damaged a little bit by, by some of the, the, uh, the SPAC market. Mm -hmm. um, Bill, one of the, um, I think so, I, I was in a couple of careers ago, I, I was with a company and we had, you know, our venture funding and we had our traditional investors and we also had a corporate uh, VC there as well. And, and the board meetings were kind of interesting. Um, lately I've been seeing, you know, uh, venture deals getting done with with lots of corporate venture funds and, and very few uh, traditional funds. And I'm just sort of interested because I know you sit on a bunch of boards of these companies and I'm just interested in sort of um, how you, I mean, how you are looked at nowadays on these boards in terms of, you know, you because you, you come with a different set of capabilities um, than, than the traditional investors. And then in general, you know, do you enjoy board meetings nowadays? I mean, uh, uh, I mean what are things like uh, in the 2022 environment? 
when you're dealing with syndicates that may be uh, you know, a different mix than, than we're traditionally used to from some years ago? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. Um, you know, certainly the board dynamics have changed quite a bit. And of course, when you're in a down, you know, turn like we're in, you know, sometimes you're in syndicates that they've run out of capital. And then what do you do? I think the corporates are in a unique position. I think what you've seen is the rise of the corporates in the last five years. You know, certainly when we started the fund at Merck 10 years ago, and J&J was different because J&J is probably the longest standing pharma venture fund. I think they 70 years they've been around. So, uh, you know, they had a much, you know, better reputation and, and, and infrastructure at the time. Um, but even with Merck, when I started, you know, corporates still were kind of looked at differently. Um, you know, do they cut bait and run? If it's not strategic, do they walk away? Um, you know, but I think today with the rise of the corporates and, and part of that rise is, is where they realize that, you know, we're good at what we do. We know our industry really well. Why do we need to put money in another fund where we can establish our own fund and do our own investing? Because we're as knowledgeable, you know, within that space, as long as we hire the right kind of people to do that kind of investing. And I think that's what you're starting to see. So within the boardroom, what you're starting to see then is a, a greater level of expertise is now coming with the corpus because, you know, a group like us has been established for 13 years. We're very, very experienced. Yeah. Um, you know, we lend a lot of dynamics to the board. We understand how companies work. And then we're certainly there as a resource because one of the main things that tends to happen with any company is they want to work with a corporate because we're the client typically, right? And in healthcare, pharma is one of the largest customers and users of a lot of these sort of tools and especially within digital health as, as well as the, 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 the payer and provider, but pharma is a, a pretty big client. So we bring, to your point, additional resourcing. Um, you know, to the table. Um, I think from a capital perspective, we tend to have a little more stable capital um, because we have a single LP. Um, and not that everybody follows the evergreen fund that we are, but, you know, many work on annual allocations. So there's always sort of, um, you know, fresh capital coming in. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the board just of it, because if you, if you, I like them because if you take pride in building a company, then you want to be an active board member and you want to help the company as much as you can without interfering, right? Because your, your role at the, at the board level is not to run the company on a daily basis. It's, it's to help them, them attain, you know, the levels of success that they need to attain through a lot of different mechanisms um, and oversight. Um, but it's not my job to run the daily operations of these companies. But I think you take a, uh, an active role um, within these companies. And I think that's what you're starting to see with the corporates, them taking more active roles um, as board members within these companies. And even at the observer role, being an active, active observer, um, you know, because obviously with board membership comes different types of liabilities, but we still think for us, that's the best way to help manage our, our portfolio. Um, but I still enjoy them. I think they're dynamic. You meet a lot of great people. You learn a lot. You know, it, it doesn't matter. There's always different viewpoints, people with different experiences. So I'm always finding it a, a learning experience to learn from others and then take those learnings to the next board, you know, that I might sit on. And I think all of our team kind of thinks that way as well, that these, these are, 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 are fun things to do, but they're stressful, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I kind of like it, at, you know, as head of the fund, I have 34 children. Some I like uh, on days better than others, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> some are performing better than others on, on certain days. And, uh, you know, they all have their unique uh, uh, problems uh, and, and things that you're trying to solve for. But, uh, but that's part of the business you're in. I mean, the whole purpose is for us to 
to build assets that exist in a world that provide, and for me in healthcare that provide, you know, better, better care for people. Yeah. And that's what you're trying to do. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's a, a good thing to do, but it's not for everybody. Um, you know, in fact, many corporates that we talk to, they, a lot of them have, have stepped away from the board role more around liability issues than, than nothing else. But, um, you know, if done properly, those things never, never happen. Yeah, there was a there was the announcement a couple of days ago of an amino oncology group here in Philly that uh, I think like every pharma corporate VC is on is, is involved with them. I was like, I, I want to I would love to watch those board meetings at some point. Well, that's another that's for another time. Um, Bill, I, I wanted to ask you one other thing um, because you know you, you mentioned at the beginning that the Merck Fund does not do early stage, doesn't do seed or anything like that, but you are. Uh, personally involved with a uh, a group called the Hit Lab Breakthrough Alliance, which uh, is an accelerator of sorts that that does look at uh, startups and and helps uh, some of these smaller companies pilot test things with different partners and patients potentially um, have competitions, different networking events. Um, can you talk a little bit of, about this group and, and sort of your involvement in it? And then the other, you know, just related to it, uh, sort of a second part of the question, sorry about that, but um, I saw a, a discussion panel you were involved in through HitLab that was recently entitled Clinical Trials in a Post-Pandemic Era. Um, and we talked all about these wonderful digital tools. Would just love to get a couple of minutes from you also on where you think we are going in terms of the virtualization, let's say, of clinical development as we move forward in 2023 and, and beyond. Okay, to answer your first question, so the HIT, Hit Lab, um, I'm, I'm chairman of the Breakthrough Alliance. And, and the reason I, I joined HIT Lab was for a couple of different reasons. You know, first off, even though I'm a growth investor, every stage of investing is important. And because I can't invest if there's no seed investor, right? If there's no A round investor, there's no B round investor, and they all play an important role in the ecosystem of investing. And so I'm a big supporter of the early stage investors because they're feeders to me ultimately. But why the Columbia Hit Lab's really interesting sort of group is one of the things that they do that's, that's very unique is they do um, clinical validation of assets. And so what happens is they open up a cohort in a specific area. I think Women's Health was one that they did um, last year. And uh, they invite five companies in and what they do is they'll work with the company on establishing their clinical validation of whatever their tool is and then publishing that. And what that does is it really helps the company sort of jump ahead of other companies because the, one of the hardest things to do for these companies is to get that validation. Um, what, and, and it's not always about yet about getting some kind of FDA approval. It's about, you know, does your technology do what you say it's going to do and does it provide the clinical validation that moves to an outcome that the industry is looking for. Because ultimately without that clinical validation, no one's going to, to work with you. Um, you know, it's one of the most important things. And, and that's what their specialty is, is doing this clinical validation. And what they've done is open up this big network of early stage investors, um, early stage entrepreneurs, um, and um, a lot of programs that they offer in, in helping people understand, you don't always have to be part of the hit, you know, the Alliance and, and be picked as one of their cohorts. Um, you can just generally work with the community within the breakthrough Alliance and, and Columbia hit lab to, to have mentorship, help people guide you. And, and that's what it's all about for me is, is, is working with earlier investors because they're feeders working with earlier entrepreneurs. If I can offer any advice and guidance, how they might get to, you know, my stage of investing and where I might show up. 
Um, but it's, re- it's really more around, like I said, um, supporting the different stages of investing and then helping, especially in healthcare, companies grow and get that clinical validation that they need. And, and that's important for, for what I do, because if without it, I wouldn't do the C investing, you know, if they don't have their validation by that point. To answer your other question, you know, I think the clinical trial space and the virtualization of it is still in its early stages. I think pharma, Merck in and of itself and other pharmas are testing it. Um, obviously, it's not been fully adopted. You know, we still do plenty of clinical trials on site. In, 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 uh, but I think we have to look at alternative. I think the industry needs to look at alternative ways to do um, virtual clinical trials and, and how that's going to play a role. Because that's, you know, clinical trials is the hardest thing that pharma does, trying to get people enrolled, giving them access. And if people want alternative site of care and alternative site of enrollment and the use of things like monitoring that we mentioned earlier, the, all those types of things, um, the use of biomarkers, um, you know, the, the whole industry is changing. I, I think pharma just generally is slow to adopt because the, the one thing that we do really well is a traditional clinical trial, you know, the double blind placebo controlled test, and we're really good at it. And to just jump to something completely new, um, you know, is high risk. And so I think you'll see pharma slowly adopt some of these technologies, but it's going to take time. I don't think there's anything that's going to happen overnight and in the next three to five years. I think it's going to be a little longer than that just because it's just going to be a slow because we're not going to totally just get rid of the traditional way we do clinical trials. No one's going to do that. But we do, like any other part of our um, development program, we have to start adopting technologies and changing the way we do things. And, it's, you know, the example was I gave earlier, the, why is Merck so interested in the use of AI in clinical development? Because they see that that kind of technology can help them maybe identify targets faster, right? Than the traditional way they do it. So they will, pharma will adopt if the technology is right. I just think in the clinical trial space, it's going to be a little slower. That's just one person's opinion. Um, you know, and I think as an investor, which is really more of the viewpoint I'm talking about, we're slow to invest in that space because I don't, we don't know what part of that virtual clinical trial is going to win yet. Uh, and so it's hard to pick assets for us so far. We've, we've got a couple, but I would say, you know, we're working on a pretty big work stream right now. Our team trying to understand, doing that research that I talked about before and trying to really understand what does Merck think about it? What are the areas Merck most likely would want to try to test first? And then if we can come to some kind of um, agreement with Merck that, yeah, this is where you want to look. This is where we're willing to dabble. Maybe we can do some small pilots and work with you more closely. That, that's the way we'll start to build this out. Um, but it's, I think it's just going to be slow for us. Um, and I don't think we'll build a big ecosystem quickly in that kind of space. Got it. Got it. Well, I, I, I appreciate your perspective on it. And clearly you, you, you have decent ecosystems should the, <laughs> should the, the complete virtualization uh, occur sometime that, that you'll definitely be well-placed. Uh, so now it's a, uh, no, I, I appreciate the, to that insight, Bill. Um, anything else hot coming up for 2022 as we enter 2023? Um, conferences that you're going to be presenting at any talks you're going to be giving places that uh people listening can can hear you maybe meet you um anything else that you might want to mention please yeah well certainly i'm you know i continue to do on a monthly basis the the hit lab um and then i'll be presenting at their fall symposium um global corporate venturing is 
our sort of trade association, if you will, and we're quite active in those two meetings that occur in February and June. Um, I'll be at JP Morgan, obviously. Sure. Uh, we, uh, and then another group I work closely with is something called Health Excel, which is a global community uh, around health investors and companies. Uh, it's run out of Dublin uh, by a gentleman named Martin Kelly. Uh, they do these global gatherings. I'm actually going to one this week in Chicago because um, I'm, I'm also sitting on their advisory board. Uh, and that's a great community on a global basis around meeting companies outside the U.S. and meeting investors outside the U.S. and trying to understand how healthcare works, you know, well beyond the U.S. border. So that's another sort of neat one uh, that, that I'm involved with. Um, and then, uh, and then there's always other opportunities that kind of come up, you know, during like this one, which I was really happy to do and enjoyed it so far. And, um, you know, these kind of things pop up as well. Uh, but uh, those are kind of the main things that I have sort of coming up for the, for the remainder of the year. Uh, I, I don't do a ton of general conferences, though. The ones that our team is very interested in is, is uh, we have a group going to the uh, health, the HTL or HLPH one coming up, health. Um, I think um, we didn't make it, but one of the ones we want to go to because we've heard it's really good is Vive. Uh, that's down in Miami. Sure. That occurred in May. Um, yep. So those are two. We used to do hymns quite a bit, but I think we've moved beyond kind of that's more infrastructure technology. And I think we've moved sort of beyond that so far within healthcare uh, from the general infrastructure. So we don't do hymns as much anymore. Um, and then overseas, we, we uh, are doing something called Frontiers Health, which is, again, a sort of a health conference that's focusing on non-U.S., um, and we're global investors, um, so I don't know if I mentioned that before, but we do invest outside the U.S. and um, we try to think as best we can globally about uh, you know the way we think about digital health investing. Awesome, really great stuff. Um, amazing portfolio, Bill. I really rooting you on uh, as you continue to develop it and, and and invest in new companies and exit old ones and uh, keeping this model going. It's uh, it's really fascinating. Uh, just really appreciate listening to it. Um, uh, again, for everybody uh, that is going to be listening to this particular episode of our show uh, across the various podcast networks uh, or watching on the uh, the YouTube channel or the blog, you've again been listening to Bill Toronto, president and founding partner of Merck Global Health Innovation Fund. We will put the link in the bio to the show. Um, Bill, I want to thank you again for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us for a little while about all these topics. Uh, obviously, thank you for everything you're doing there at the fund. And, and as we say on this show, uh, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow for so many of us via the technology you're developing, the companies you're investing in. Really a very fascinating story and wishing you the best of all of it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the time, you know, speaking with you today and, you know, hopefully we can do this again in the future with uh, Absolutely. other interesting topics. Thank you. Absolutely.